the Word of God this morning together. Let's just bow one more time, offer our time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you that we can be here together, that we live in this country that allows us the openness to be able to gather and to study your Word. Lord, we pray that you would continue to allow us that opportunity, that freedom, as well as open our minds to understand that we can live according to what it says and thereby magnify and glorify and honor your name. So attend to our time by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's great to be back again this morning together. We are returning once again, as you can tell in your bulletin, I'm sure, to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You know, it's interesting as I've been studying these two verses and trying to trying to get past them. This is like a, a blockage in the artery for me in the study of this whole book because this is the hinge point. This is the place in which we must remain for some time because we must understand this or we will not do what God has asked us to do for His glory. We might do those things in an outward kind of way. We might exercise these kinds of things that we will find in the following verses in chapters 12 all the way through chapter 16. We might do them by way of exercise externally in our life, but it will not be for God's glory because they will not be motivated by the right thing. I hope this morning you came here understanding that you are here as an instrument or a trophy, probably is a better way to put it, of God's mercy. How many here this morning, put your hand up if, if, if this is true of you, how many here this morning believe that you deserve God's mercy? How many here believe that you live under the mercy of God? We are here because of God's mercy. We, we think about that intellectually. We rightly raised our hands when I asked that question. But I wonder at times, and I'm thinking about this in light of when I'm studying this, thinking about my own life, I wonder at times if I really actually believe that. Because it's easy for us to say, yes, I know, I live under the mercy of God, and yet my life doesn't really reflect that. That doesn't really reflect that in the areas in which, if I read on ahead in this passage, it doesn't really reflect that in all these kinds of ways. Because, I mean, let's just think about this in a practical sense. Look at verse 9 of this very chapter. Let love be without hypocrisy. Do you ever love in a hypocritical way? Then you don't understand you live under the mercy of God. Do you abhor what is evil? then why do you embrace things that are evil in your life? Do you cling to what is good? Are you devoted to one another in brotherly love? Do you give preference to one another in honor? Are you not lagging behind in diligence? Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord? 
Are you rejoicing in hope, preserving in tribulation, devoted in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality? Do you bless those that persecute you? You see, this is the reality of our life if we understand verse 1. This is why Paul put it here. This is why we have 11 chapters. I, I, was, I was just doing a quick survey this week of, of the letters of Paul. Paul, this is Paul's entire drive in every book he writes. We are under the mercy of God. If we had a death sentence upon us from the court of our country and we were given relief from that by based upon the death of someone else, we would live completely differently. And yet that's what God has done for us by the mercy of God. What we have here in verses 1 and 2 is the most succinct definition in all of Scripture as to what practical sanctification looks like in the life of you and I as Christians. I trust that by now, at least here in this church, if you have been here for some time through our study of this great epistle, that you have a good understanding of positional sanctification. Right? That by faith in Jesus Christ, having been united with Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection, we are, who are believers in Jesus Christ, we are right now in the eyes and in the heart of God, the Creator, the one who fashioned you before the time ever began and fashioned you to who you are and placed you in the moment in time in which you live. God, right now, because of Christ, as you walk here right now in this place and sit here this morning, God, right now, is seeing you as holy. Right now, as you live in this world, constantly harassed by sin, sin that is not only within you, but sin that is also outside, God is in the business of making us holy, not just positionally, but making us holy in practice. In practice. This is what it means when we say that we are being sanctified. We are not being made to be little Christ. We are being made into the likeness of Christ. We are being made to live like Christ lived. So when we read these verses and when we look at the verses to follow and all the practices that we are to be living like, this is what Christ was like. Here's what these verses say again. Beginning in verse 1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good 
and acceptable and perfect. Now, we have already spent considerable time on the motivation that drives this process. I mentioned it already this morning. Summed up right here in verse 1, really in that phrase that I mentioned, by the mercies of God. Based upon what God has done through salvation in Jesus Christ, we, therefore, as His children, as Christians, have a duty to continually present ourselves to God for His use. We have a new master. That new master has paid the price for us. And therefore, now we are slaves of righteousness. Therefore, we are to be a living sacrifice that is completely different, that is fully agreeable. That's what acceptable means. Fully agreeable with God's ways, living a life from a reasoned spiritual thought, from reasoned spiritual thinking, and not, as we saw last time in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, not from mindless thought. Not from mindless thought. We are to be adorning the gospel. Last Lord's Day, we began to look at verse 2 here in this beginning, and we are getting to know the how of this sanctification, how it happens with us, how this practical sanctification happens in our lives. Now, I need to say at the outset that far too often when it comes to us as Christians and the need for some change to be made in our life, right? We, we identify a trouble area in our life, an area of sin, some area of weakness in which we are not living as we want to live, and we begin to address it by making some kind of behavioral change. Maybe it's issues in my marriage, maybe it's issues with my kids, maybe it's issues with my coworkers, maybe it's just interpersonal relationships with other people, whatever it is. It doesn't really matter what it is. We say to ourselves, okay, I want to do better in this area, And you begin to make your attempts at changing your behavior. Okay, I realize I got a problem, I got to do different. That's what we say. And what often happens is either we fail right out of the gate because we realize I just don't have the energy, the strength, I I don't want the will, there's something that I just, it's too strong. I've heard this a thousand times from people that I know, I'm just too tired. And they don't mean physically in one sense tired. They mean mentally tired. I keep trying, I keep trying, I keep trying, but I just can't do it. I fail every single time. And so they just give up. Or you make a change and your change is to another behavior that is no better than the first behavior. And you find that you're continually failing to have victory over that area. Why? Why? Well, because you're aiming at the wrong thing. Reminded me years ago, I had a man come into my office, not here. It was at another church when I was pastoring in Ohio. Came into my office. They were having major marital problems in their life. And he came in and sat down. He wanted me to help them. And I said to him, what do you hope to get from our time together? And he said, well, I want a happy marriage. I want my marriage to be happy again. And I said, brother, I want to be an encouragement to you. But I want to tell you, you're aiming at the wrong thing. 
his jaw hit the floor. Well, what? What are you talking about? I said, God doesn't want you to have a happy marriage. What? What do you mean God doesn't want me to have a happy marriage? I said, God doesn't want you to have a happy marriage. God wants you to be a faithful child of his in your marriage. I said, you start serving Christ in your marriage and guess what's going to happen with you? You're going to get happy. You see, you're trying to modify behavior. You're trying to modify things on the outside when the problem is that your behavior is the outflow of what happens inside. Your thinking, the place where your behavior is fueled. And because we're trying to change behavior on the outside, it doesn't work for the long term. It might seem good. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, it's great that people get off alcohol. Physically, it's, it's, it's bad. You drink like that, it's, it's bad for you physically. But guess what? Someone who stops drinking, who doesn't know Jesus Christ, is just a drunk who changes their idol to something else. Their eternity is the same. They've gone from the idol of alcohol to the idol of something else. They've not really been helped at all. They just changed their behavior. Let me show us this from the text that I read for us this morning in our Bible reading. Ephesians chapter 4. Go to Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment. This whole reality that it's our thinking, that, that it's our mind. It's just like in Romans, Paul, here in Ephesians chapter 4, because Paul spends his time in the first three chapters laying out what God has done for us. Laying out the reality that we live under the mercy of God. Chapter 1 is clear in all of that, beginning in verse 3. God is to be blessed because He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Well, what are those blessings? Well, He chose you in Him before the foundation of the world so that you'd be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined you as a, to adoption as a son through Christ, according to the kind intention of His will, that He might be praised. He has given you redemption through His blood, which is the forgiveness of your sins according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. In wisdom and insight, He made known to you the mystery of His will according to the kind intention which He purposed in Christ with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times. What is that? That Christ is in you, that you have this gift from God, that, that Christ died for you, that, that now you can live for Him. That you have an inheritance because He predestined that according to the purpose of His work, where He works all things to the counsel of His will, verse 11. To the end that you who are first to hope in Christ should be the praise of His glory. And He sealed you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 13. So you know that inheritance is secure. 
you know that all you have is absolutely secure. He made you alive. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, chapter 2 says, but He made you alive in Christ. He raised you up with Christ. He seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. You have surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. You're His workmanship. He created you in Christ Jesus that you should walk in the good works which He created. All of that we have because of the mercy of God. Then Paul summarizes just how it is that we are to live as the body of Christ in chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Because there's one body. You were called in one hope. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. God has brought you into this wonderful union because of Jesus Christ that you have this special relationship with those who are in Jesus Christ and each one of you has been given the gift of faith according to the measure that God has given to you. So exercise your gifts within that body to strengthen the body. Why? Because you've been shown mercy. You didn't deserve it. You weren't worthy of it. You weren't looking good on the outside. And God said, hey, I think they'll do okay for me. I'll choose them. No, you had nothing going for you at all. But because of God's mercy, He equipped you and put you in the body. And so He says in verse 14 of that same chapter, chapter 4 of Ephesians 4, as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. No, we're to speak the truth in love. We're to grow up in all aspects in Him, who is the head of Christ, for whom the whole body being fitted together and held together, which every point joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body, the building up of itself in love. In other words, in light of what Christ has done for you, in light of your understanding of that, here's how you're to live. And we say, oh, well, that sounds great. That's great. God has done so much for me. But what that, uh, but what is it that fuels the opposite behavior? What is it that fuels the wrong behavior? What is it that makes the wrong behavior go? Doesn't it, it sounds to me, Paul, like you're just talking about a change of behavior. I just need to change my behavior. Well, certainly there's a behavioral change, but what is it that fuels that opposite behavior? That's the very thing I read this morning, beginning in verse 17. Notice what he says, this I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, what? 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 What do you affirm together with the Lord, Paul? That you walk, that is your Christian life, that's, that's, that's what that word walk means, that you carry your Christian life, you live out your Christian life, this is practical living, you live out your life, no longer just as the Gentiles, no longer as the unbelieving world, when he says Gentiles, he means those who don't know Christ, no longer like that, no longer like the world around you, and how are they living? In the futility, notice, of their mind. You notice the last phrase there in verse 17. In the futility of their mind. That's how they're living. Now that's the same thing that Paul is saying in Romans 12. 
Do not be conformed to this world. He's just saying it in a different way. He's saying he's using a different term. So why, why does the unbelieving world walk like that? Why do they walk like that? Well, the Bible tells us here in Ephesians 4. Because they are, notice, verse 18, darkened in their understanding, darkened in their understanding, being excluded from the life of God. Well, you have the life of God. You've been brought into the life of God, so you're not excluded from that understanding. Understanding what? Understanding the mercy of God upon you. You're not excluded from that, but they are because of what? Why are they excluded from that? Because of the ignorance, it says, that is in them. Ignorance. We saw that word last week in 1 Peter 1.14. Agnoia. Ignorance. Mindlessness. That's what the word means. It doesn't mean they don't know. Romans 1 says they do know. We all know. This is mindlessness. It's in them. The mindlessness that's in them. We were all in that group. Ephesians 2 says that, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You you thought this way. You were mindless like they were. You were ignorant like that. Why? Because of the hardness of your heart. End of verse 18. Because of the hardness of the heart. And, verse 19, they, having become callous because of the hardness of their heart, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. You know why he always adds that at the end? With greediness. It seems like, well, gosh, sensuality, impurity, what's greediness have to do with that? Because sensuality, impurity is, I'm going to get what I want. It's greedy about yourself. You love yourself. You love yourself. You see, it isn't a behavior problem they have. As if we could just change the behavior of the world. If we just get the world to live a little more morally, have a moral outlook and a moral practice, then everything will be good in the world. Wrong. Wrong. No, they have a mindset problem. That's where behavior comes from. But Ephesians 4 says, notice verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way. You didn't learn Christ in this way, you the Christian, if indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. You see, you didn't learn Christ in that way. That's futility. That's futile thinking. To live and think like the world, that's futility. As a Christian, you are completely different. You learn the exact opposite. You heard Christ. You've been taught in Christ. You know where truth is. So what are you to live like in light of that? How are you to live in light of what you do know, what you understand, i.e. the mercies of God in your life? How are you supposed to live? Well, verse 22 to the end of the chapter that I read this morning shows you that. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. That's being corrupt in accordance with the lust of deceit. You be renewed, notice verse 23, you be renewed where? 
in your behavior? He didn't say that. He didn't say, hey, listen, just pick yourself up by the bootstraps and change your behavior. Get your behavior different. He doesn't say that. What does he say in verse 23? Be renewed in the spirit of your what? Mind. You need your mind renewed. You need your mind renewed. So do we hear what God is saying? Listen, he's saying that the place to start in your Christian life when it comes to an area in which you need a change, in which a change is needed by way of behavior, he doesn't say, okay, do something different. No, he says the spirit of your mind needs to be renewed. Listen, if you're living wrong, I can guarantee you there's somewhere, somewhere in your thinking you have wrong thinking about God, about Jesus Christ, or about your salvation. And what the implications of that are to be for your life. There's something in there. Some combination of that somewhere in there. There's something that needs, that's amiss. And how you're processing those kinds of things. Because God's not even saying you need a new brain. He's not saying that. He's not saying the organ that's inside your head that I created needs to be a new one. You're not smart enough to figure this out, so I'm going to give you a smarter brain. He's not saying that. When you are saved, God doesn't give you a new instrument to use. No, what God wants is for our instrument, the very thing that He's created to process that information, He wants it to be rightly informed. That's what the spirit of the mind is. Spirit of the mind. We need to have what informs our mind renewed. Then we can begin to do what verses 24 through 32 say in Ephesians 4. See, if you do all that as an outward activity without understanding it, you're just going through rote things. You're just doing rote rituals in hopes that they're going to make things better. But you don't have any idea why you're doing it. You just know, well, this is what the Bible says I should do. It says speak truth. I don't know how to do that, but okay. Verse 29 says, look, let no unwholesome words proceed out of my mouth. Well, gosh, there's words that come out of my mouth that are unwholesome all the time. How do I fix that? I could say, well, I just can't do that. I could say like my mom used to say when I was a little boy. If you say that again, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. Well, that's a deterrent, but that doesn't fix the problem. What if I started liking the flavor of soap? (laughs) You see, none of us will do any of this, nor will we be able to do it for the right reasons until the spirit of our mind is set right. What needs to change is not simply our behavior, but rather our thinking. This is what Paul is getting to back in Romans chapter 12. And go back there. This is what Paul's getting to. And he approaches it from the negative side and the positive side. Last time we looked at the negative side. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. We spent some time on that last time. If you weren't here, please go online, listen to it yourself. But just by way of summary for us here this morning, we can just summarize it by saying that we are not to be thinking and thereby living contrary to who we are in Christ. 
That's what that phrase really is saying. You are not to be thinking and living contrary to who you are in Christ. Do not live contrary to who and to what you are. That's what happens when we're living like the world. We're living as a Christian. We're living contrary to who we are and what we are. That's what conformed really means. That's what it implies. As Christians, we are not to be living outwardly what we are not inwardly. Remember the word? The word here is schema. That's the root word. In fact, interestingly enough, it's the same word used in Philippians chapter 2 by the Apostle Paul when he describes the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And this is just incredible, so I want to show us this really quickly. Philippians chapter 2. This is a great passage. We go there all the time. We say, this is Jesus, this is God becoming man. And this word schema is used here in this passage. Just listen to what it says, beginning in verse 6. Philippians 2, verse 6, right? We are exhorted, in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6 is the continuation of that beginning sentence. Have this attitude in you, which is also in Christ. Okay, so we're to have the attitude of Christ. Well, what was Christ? Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. The word appearance there is the same word as Romans chapter 12 and the word conform. Appearance. It's schema. Schema. In other words, Jesus was found in appearance as a man. That simply means... That that was what he was outwardly, but he was inwardly fully God. He's the full man, full God, yet without sin. So Jesus was in the appearance as a man. That doesn't mean he wasn't fully man. That just means outwardly what you saw was mankind. So he assumed manhood. He took it on. But he was still God inwardly. He took on humanity. He was in the appearance as a man in his incarnation. He's fully man, yet still fully God. That's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 12 by exhorting us not to be conformed to this world. Right? In other words, do not put on the outward appearance in your Christian life of belonging to the world, but rather... What? Romans 12, 2, but rather be transformed. Rather be transformed. Now that's an entirely different word. Right? The root word is morphe, morphe. It's the idea of total change, total change. That's why when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, it's called metamorphosis. It's total change, completely different. Completely different. In other words, be outwardly what you are inwardly. That's the idea that Paul's saying. Be outwardly. Be consistent outside what you are inside. Who you are. Who you really are on the inside. That's the idea. 
you get a glimpse of this in the Gospels. We saw it in the Gospel of Mark when we were studying the Gospel of Mark some time ago. In chapter 9, verse 2. Remember, Jesus takes James and John and Peter to the mountain. He leaves the rest below. They go up to the top of the mountain. And on the top of the mountain, he is what? Transformed. That's the word. We say transfiguration. It was transformed. They, they see the glory and the essence of Jesus as he peels back his humanity. And the inner nature, the inner essence of Jesus is fully on display right there. Who Jesus is inwardly is now visible, the blazing glory of God visible, clearly seen to those who are there because Jesus reveals that. He is outwardly at that moment what he always is inwardly. So what is Paul saying to us here in Romans chapter 12? He's saying that we and we as Christians live a worldly way. What we are doing is living contrary to who we are inwardly. When you live like the world in whatever way it is, that's a contradiction of who you are. In a sense, we're like someone who's hiding behind a mask. We're, we're play acting. We, we are what a hypocrite is. We're hypocrites. Is there any reason why Paul would have to say in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy? See, we're not living according to our true and new nature. We're not being true to who we are. And so Paul is saying, instead of doing that, in light of the mercies of God, according to what you understand about the mercies of God, according to what you have been saved from, who you are in Jesus Christ, in light of all of that, instead of doing what the world does, do the exact opposite. Reflect the exact opposite. Let your true inner nature shine out for others to see. You say, so how do I do that? How do I be transformed? How do I be completely different than what I was before? I've tried that. I've tried behavioral modification. I've tried to change those things. It doesn't seem to work. How do I reflect out exactly different than what I am before? The behavior. How does that behavior change? How do I carry out this exhortation that Paul is giving to us here as believers? How do I do that? Well, you can't start with outward behavior. It's the wrong place to start. I was telling Randy yesterday, he and I were talking, and I said, you know, I spent 20 years as an air traffic controller. I used to tell airplanes to go from point A to point B. And the pilots would go from point A to point B, and they would carry passengers and land safely. And I said to Randy, I said, you know, if a, if a 757 leaves Los Angeles heading east to fly to New York, and he's one degree off on his heading and never changes that, He's either going to end up in Canada or somewhere in the Carolinas, but he's not going to land in New York. All the right equipment, all the right things, but he's going to miss the mark. Why? Because he started out in the wrong place. It's the same with us. You cannot start with outward behavior. You cannot go about convinced that if you change your behavior, then your life's going to be okay. If you start there... You're going to find failure every time. Why? Because the Bible says, out of the heart flows the wellsprings of life. The Bible says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
If you change what you speak without changing the heart, it changes nothing. If you change the outward life without changing the heart, it changes nothing. Listen, this is an important parallel to remember. When God told Noah, back in Genesis chapter 6, when God said to Noah, I'm going to destroy the world with the flood, he didn't say to Noah that it was because people of the world were living and behaving in ways that were bad and wrong. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say, I'm going to destroy the world by a flood because when I look around the world, all the behavior of the people of the world is so terrible. It wasn't their outward morality that was the trouble. It was their heart. It was their heart. Genesis 6, 5. Just listen. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see, that's why they lived as they did, because every thought of their heart was evil continually. And so every act was wickedness. There's no different. No different a few chapters before that in Genesis chapter 3. In the Garden of Eden, with Adam and Eve, we have to understand, we have to go all the way back there. We have to take our thinking and think about the Scriptures and take everything we've ever known and go back to the Scriptures and say, am I thinking rightly about this? Because when Adam and Eve had their problem, the fall wasn't merely that Adam and Eve disobeyed the command of God. They surely disobeyed the command of God. Their behavior certainly was that. But it wasn't that they simply disobeyed that one thing. No, what happened with Adam and Eve was that the spirit of their mind followed what was not true. They allowed their mind to be renewed by a lie. They followed the lie. See, before the fall, they lived for God. They lived out what was on the inside. They obeyed God. Their thoughts were absorbed with the things of God. They walked with God in the cool of the day, it says. But when the liar came, when the deceiver came, he didn't just try to sell the fruit as something pleasing to them. Hey, check, hey, check this out. I got some better fruit than what you've been given before. I know you're only eating vegetables. Here's some fruit. You might spice up your life a little bit. No, he didn't do that. What was worse was that he introduced to them that they should think differently about God. That's what he said to them. Genesis 3, verse 1 and following. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said... He didn't say, Hey, check this out. I got a nice piece of whatever here. Hadn't God said, indeed has God said, you shall not feed from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, hmm, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said, you're not understanding it right. Surely you're not going to die. Think differently about what God said. Think differently. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes are going to be opened. You'll be like God. And you'll know good and evil. 
You see, he said, listen, you need to think differently. You see, the damage had been done before Adam and Eve ever exercised the act of disobedience. They thought differently about God, and therefore they ate. And so we can see, beloved, they, the way to deal with a particular sin in your life is not to start with ridding yourself of the particular sin and then everything's good. No, the place to start is to evaluate how you think about that sin spiritually. How are you thinking? Because that's what's producing that. You're thinking. We have to begin with who we are and what we are in Christ. We have to understand the truth about ourselves. We have to be transformed in our behavior by the renewing of our mind, Paul says. Paul says you want to you deal with your problem, you want to have sanctification happening in your practice in your Christian life, then the first thing to do is get your thinking right about God. Get your thinking right about God. Get your thinking right about yourself. Get your thinking right about your salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. Realize... That you are living by the mercies of God. You're taking the breath into your nostrils by the mercies of God. You woke up this morning by the mercies of God. You were able to exercise the, the faculties of your very physical life by the mercies of God. You're here this morning. You're able to understand truth by the mercies of God. You are a Christian by the mercies of God. You had a death sentence on you. And now by the mercies of God, you are alive. That ought to cause us to think differently about the petty little sins that we do. We are saved from that. You see, start dealing with your mind. Evaluate your thinking. Evaluate who you are in Christ. What it is that you're to be reflecting in your behavior in your life because of who you are in Christ. So the thing that matters is in us is the spirit of the mind that which fuels everything else. The late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, quote, The difference between Christianity and morality is also the difference between Christianity and hypocrisy. The hypocrite pretends and is not inwardly what he pretends. The true Christian truly is what he appears to be. He's saying the inward is what drives the outward. That is why Paul is implying here that the Christian conduct grows out of a renewing of your mind. It is the mind that God says must be renewed. Listen, you want to have discernment in your life about what to do, when to do it, why you do it, and how to do it? You want to have that? Paul says that's where you begin. Renew your mind. Renew your mind. It's a great word. Renew. It means it means renovation. That's what the word means. Be transformed by the renovation of your mind. 
I like that word. I like to do carpentry. I used to do carpentry when I was in Florida. I enjoyed working that. I work with wood sometimes in my free time. Some of you know that. I like, I like this word. Renovation means change. Change. And when we're speaking of the mind, we cannot get the idea that it simply means a change of opinion. In other words, I need to have a new opinion. Remember, opinions are in the realm of subjectivity. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go get the last week's message and see the difference between subjective and objective. It's not talking about change your opinion about it. That's included, but opinion only leaves it there. It leaves it in the realm of subjectiveness. Who's right? Well, we don't know. Your opinion might be different than my opinion. Something's got to decide that, and the only thing that decides that is objective truth. Now, what Paul means here is that when a Christian sees the truth with understanding, when you and I look in the Scriptures, rightly divided, and understand the truth by the grace of God through the illumination of His Spirit, and we are controlled by that, then our conduct begins to change, and we find that we can and do have victory over even besetting sins. Things that have plagued us for years. Therefore, beloved, we as Christians have to remember this. We are not different from the world. And even those who are worldly moral people. Because we live differently than they do. At least we should do. We should live differently than they do, but we're not because we live differently than they do. That isn't what differentiates us from the world. What differentiates us as Christians from the world around us is that the spirit of our mind is different. The spirit of our mind is different. How we see things is completely different. Whatever fuels our living is completely different. We have a completely different perspective and point of view on everything. Why? Because we see it with God's eyes. We have the objective, authoritative, sufficient, living, active word of God. In fact, it's described to us by the Apostle Paul in his other epistles as the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We are in Christ. We are new creatures in Christ. The old things of our old self have passed away. All things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says. So let me ask all of us a question this morning. As you look at your life, is there something that you've been attempting to deal with And you just can't seem to overcome it. Maybe you're here. And as you've been listening, God has been convicting you about something. Something in your heart. Something you know. You've been working on it, working on it, working on it. Trying, trying, trying. You fail. Or maybe there's just something you weren't aware of before, but God's brought it up this morning. My encouragement to us is to learn from what God has been saying right here. Stop looking at the behavior. Stop focusing on the behavior. And rather look at your thinking. Evaluate your thinking about who you are and about what you are in Christ. 
Evaluate your thinking about what you understand about who God is. Evaluate your thinking about what you understand truly about who Jesus Christ is. Evaluate your thinking about what it means that God saved you. Go back into the Word of God, the objective truth, and see what God has said about you and about who you are in Christ if you know Christ. Go back and read from verse 1 all the way to verse 36 of chapter chapter uh, uh, 11. Read all of that and say, this is what I've been saved from. This is what I was. Have your mind renewed. Have your subjective thinking jettisoned for that which is objective and solid. Get rid of the subjective agnoia, the subjective ignorance, the foolishness of the world, and go to the objective solid truth. Believe it. Walk by faith in it, and you will see that in practice your life's actions will be transformed. You'll no longer do that very thing that you did by practice. Your mind is going to be transformed. The Spirit of Christ has promised to lead us. John 14. He's promised to lead us, but we must respond, right? We have to think about these things. We have to embrace these things. We have to be saturated in these things. And then... You'll begin to live as you ought to live. Our Christianity is not simply wrapped up in who we are and not simply in what it's wrapped up in who we are, not simply in what we do. Let me say that again. Our Christianity is is wrapped up in who we are, not simply in what you do. It's inward, not outward. It's wrapped up in who we are inside. And when we're embracing that and living that, it flows to the outside. The moment that you keep these things in mind so that that rules your thinking, then your attitude about any problem, your attitude about the world around you and the worldly thinking in you will be changed. And your reaction and outward actions that will follow will all fall into position. Paul says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? Why? Purpose statement is the very last phrase of this entire verse. We're not going to cover it today, but I'll just introduce it here. So that, so that you might prove what the will of God is. People say, I don't know what the will of God is for my life. Well, you want to know what the will of God is? Have your mind renewed by the Word of God. Have your mind renewed by the will of God. Then you'll be able to prove what the will of God is. His good, acceptable, and perfect will. You say, are you sure, Pastor, this is all about our thinking? Are you sure? I mean, you know, behavior is so, so readily. It's right there in front of us. Yeah, I understand that. But if you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, okay, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but, you know, that's really not my problem. I want you right now, right here, before I close in prayer, to read and listen to verse 3. 
For though through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you. How many people is that in here? Does that include everybody? Everybody that Paul was writing, everybody who's read this ever since, everybody. I say to everybody. Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. (laughs) Why would Paul have to say that? I mean, Paul, you just told us to renew your mind. Now, why would you have to say, don't think, because that's our tendency, right? That's our tendency. We go, oh, yeah, okay, I got it. I'm, I'm good. I'm not as worldly as you're saying. My mind doesn't, isn't as worldly as you're saying. My actions aren't as worldly as, as they're implied here. I understand the mercies of God, do we? Do we? Because if we're not living as God has commanded us to live by the mercies of God, then guess what? We're thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Because we think it's all about behavior. But think so as to have sound judgment. Sound judgment. As God has allowed to each one a measure of faith. Believe it. Trust it. Don't go away from here thinking, oh, no, that's for everybody else. Don't go away from here saying, boy, I sure wish so-and-so should have, would have heard this message. Because we do that. We do that. Now, this is for us. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, we'll finish verse 2 next time. I know you don't believe that, but I'm, I'm going to work to do that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Oh, we are so blind to the reality of how much mercy you have shown us. And that's why we so easily sin. Forget who we are, what we've been given. You have granted us mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Your word tells us your mercies are new every morning. Why? Because we need your mercy. Oh, Lord, we're so sinful we don't even know how sinful we are. Lord, reveal to us the areas that need to change and help our mind be renewed as we saturate it with the truth. Let us be so saturated in the truth that there's no disguising it coming out in our life. Glorify your name in us, we pray. So that your son would be seen, so that our lives would indeed adorn the gospel. That others might know you and the mercy that you offer if they would believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.